Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and on your smart speaker. Coming up in a Sun newspaper exclusive, two migrants living on the Bibby Stockholm barge have been arrested on suspicion of a sex attack. Michelle Moan comes clean. The disgraced Baroness admits that she lied to the media over her links to a PPE firm. And Fat Britain, hospital admissions are apparently linked to obesity and have doubled in six years to more than 3,000 people a day. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We're just one week away from Christmas, and you'd be forgiven for thinking that we're just hours away from a miracle, a virgin birth and a magical star rising in the east. Sadly, though, you would be mistaken, because I'm afraid modern-day Britain has outlawed any miracles this year. I mean, it would have to take a miracle for anyone to feel sorry for Baroness Michelle Moan, wouldn't it? A woman with more self-pity than she's got millions. God only knows what on earth she was thinking when she decided to do an interview with her husband over the weekend professing how right she was and how wrong everyone else is. It would take a serious believer to think that Rishi Sunak has a prayer when it comes to winning back the public's confidence, even after his attempt to move to the right with his rather late take on immigrants overwhelming the continent of Europe. And since we last saw each other, things haven't got any better for the Tories. But perhaps we have seen the future for Labour in the form of Wes Streeting. And the lefties don't like the look of it. He's already saying that a new government under his party's aegis wouldn't pay the junior doctors what they want either. Finally, someone sensible from the opposite side of Parliament. Up in Scotland, Humza Yusuf is asking Santa for a special wish list, including the abolition of the House of Lords, and I hope that SNP supporters might forget almost everything that has happened so far in 2023. When I read today they may have to be muzzled in public, that it has been ruled it will be illegal to breed them, sell them or abandon them, I was hoping it was the new rules for MPs, but it turns out I was wrong. And it's, in fact, the brand-new regulations for XL Bully Dogs, which will come into force at the end of this month. Coming up tonight, I'll be bringing you my usual irreverent look at all the big stories of the day, and we'll be finding out what the even bigger stories of tomorrow will be. We're building up to a bit of a party towards the end of the week. Tonight's cast is a brilliant one. We've got Laura Dosworth, Madeline Grant and Megan Gittos for a start, and we're on the lookout for a missing donkey. We'll also tell you all about the government's latest stealth manoeuvrings over net zero. And as ever, we want to hear from you too. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get it on. I don't think they can actually strip Michelle Moan of her peerage, but you probably think she ought to be. Let's get in touch uh, on the show with all the socials. Of course, you can call us 0344 499 
1,000. But we're going to start tonight with an exclusive story by the Sun newspaper. Two migrants living on the Bibby Stockholm barge have been arrested on suspicion of a sex attack in a bar. The pair, aged 24 and 27, were held after an alleged assault four miles from where the controversial floating accommodation is moored. Police received a complaint at the Kika Bar in Weymouth on December the 10th. Uh, there'll be a little bit more on that story in tomorrow's edition of The Sun newspaper. But first, let's talk to our panel about it. Director of Communications to Henry Jackson Society, uh, Megan Gittos, Telegraph columnist Maddie Grant, and journalist Laura Dodsworth. Laura, um, a breaking story in The Sun tonight. Um, two held uh, over, over a sex attack in a bar... This is what a lot of people in uh, Weymouth were warning would happen if you put a load of men, regardless of where they're from, regardless of what country they originate from, loads of men on a barge with nothing better to do to wander about the town at night. You know, this is going to happen. Well, I, well done for the, you know, on the sun for breaking this. But first, we've got to know it's an alleged assault. We yep. don't actually know what's happened yet. But I don't think it's actually at all fair to men to say if you put a load of men on a barge, they're going to go around attacking and raping women. That's absolute nonsense. Men know how to behave themselves. I do think, though, that the reason that locals had fears is something that, you know, we're not supposed to talk about. It's not politically correct. But if we're really honest, it is well understood by people that if you have a large influx of people from a different cultural and religious background with different attitudes towards women, this kind of thing may happen. Now... Where it's not alleged, but we've got statistics, is Sweden. Between 2000 and 2015 in Sweden, um, analysts looked at rapes, attacked, uh, attempted rapes and aggravated cases and found that 60% of rapes and, and attempted rapes were actually committed by foreign-born men, mm. mainly North African. And that was an overrepresentation compared to the population of 2.4. So people don't like talking about what is, you know, called a rape epidemic in yeah. Sweden being connected to a new demographic, but it undeniably is. Mm. And so that's why locals have got fears in, you know, in towns and cities or even smaller places where there's a big influx of people of different cultural backgrounds. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly the locals who are quoted in the story uh, tonight that we've got in The Sun, which we'll show you later on, uh, are that, that they've said, you know, if you put a load of people in a, in a place like that, and I'm not suggesting that every man who's in a group with other men would behave like that, but if they're in a sort of, I don't know, dormitory situation or, you know, they're not really being supervised... Also, let's not forget, we don't know who any of these people are. Yeah. We don't have any IDs for most of them. They're, they're supposedly having asylum, um, uh, you know, seeker claims processed. But nobody has a clue um, who's looking after them. They're apparently allowed to come and go freely as if, you know, everything's fine. You know, it's a recipe for disaster, it seems to me. The whole setup of the Biggie Stockholm is seems a recipe for disaster. A number of things. The fact that they're taken by coach to the town yeah. centre where they kind of um, are then left to do whatever they want all day, which is fine in principle. But you're right to have raised that point about Sweden. If we're pointing to a massive shift in crime in one demographic. Mm. We have to be able to openly have an adult conversation yeah. and look into why that right. is. And we should do that with all things, just as we're doing it later on with food and obesity yeah. with the NHS. Right. There is a, a dangerous trend here, and I'm really worried about social cohesion because mm. in... Is it Dorset? Yeah. If the protesters are now going to be even more angrier. They're no more reassured, and no, no one's really stepping in to say... Um, yes, if they are found mm. guilty of this alleged attack, they won't no longer be staying here because we've known from the past mm. that's not always the no. case. Well, you look mm. at what's happening in Ireland. 
Matty. Yeah. And you see yeah, there was yeah, a yeah. hotel burned down. Nobody knows why, but they think it's arson. It wouldn't take a genius to suggest that it might be something to do with people being fed up with migrants being put in hotels. And all yeah. this business of taking them on a on a sort of minibus into town for a bit of a jolly. I mean, I suppose that many have got where are they getting money from? I mean, are we giving them money to go and spend in, in nightclubs? I mean, yeah, what the hell's 40, going on? About forty pounds a week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I, mean, I don't know how many pina coladas that buys you in Weymouth, but, I mean, you know, <laughs> they shouldn't be going out, really, should they? I, I don't know. I, I think that this is a kind of issue where all the kind of the liberal-minded people say, well, it's our, it's our duty and we have, to, we, have to, we have to help these people, etc. But they, yeah. they never seem to end up in, you know, particularly wealthy parts of London no. and, and, all this, and all this stuff. And, um, you know, I think that maybe some of those calling for a more liberal policy on migration and refugees um, would do well to actually maybe go and see some of these places where yeah. communities feel totally overwhelmed. A number of MPs now where they have a lot of refugees living in their particular patch have started to raise these issues yes. in, yeah. in And the, that guy in Doncaster in who government. did it the other day yeah. got a hell of a pasting. We're just yeah. looking, by the way, at the, yeah, uh, get... the, the Sun story that we've got there by Nick Parker, exclusive. Um, and we'll have more on it later on. But, yeah, I mean... And they you get know... absolutely monstered when they do. But, yeah. But they are reflecting... What are very real concerns amongst yeah, their, the their views of their constituents who actually and, voted them in? Yeah, and you know, know, this was a very common story also when um, after Angela Merkel said refugees welcome, yeah. it just led to all kinds of chaos. There was, there was several situations. The, the documented rates yeah. surged, and you know, again, it was a kind of PC dom that prevented people from talking about yeah. it. But it was very, very real, and people knew right. it was going on. Yeah, and the again, women who actually came forward in Germany when that happened um, hid, had to hide their identity. Yeah. To talk about, yes, because they were so worried about what would be said about. Yeah, them. You're not it was being no a good that thought. shame that yeah. women have when they're raped had all of a sudden been shifted to mm. shame of talking about it, yes. and it was really frightening what had happened. Yeah. There. yeah, and it is unbelievable that we still have to suffer with this kind of officialdom, which says, "Oh no, you can't talk about that." You know, like you can't identify people, and whenever anyone's arrested, yeah. they're called, "Oh, but, it's a Swansea man." And you go, "Really? Is it?" Anyway, listen, we've got to move on because uh, uh, we've got lots to talk about tonight and we're going to be talking more about the Bibby Stockholm, of course, uh, coming up very shortly. Moving on, though, the government's under pressure to explain Baroness Michelle Moan's part in a PPE deal during the pandemic. It comes after she admitted that she lied to the press about her involvement in the scandal. And, of course... Uh, there she is, having a whale of a time. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I watched that interview oh on God. Laura Kinsberg um, <laughs> yesterday morning with a kind of a staggering and ever more ridiculous disbelief. You were kind of going... I mean, I know Michelle Moan a little bit because I was in Scotland when she was kind of becoming quite famous and becoming this kind of rather brazen, you know, former kind of ordinary working girl who'd done very well for herself. And, you know, she's always been quite abrasive. She's always been quite, um, I would say... Um, able to stand up for herself. But but that was just kind of total delusionary, wasn't it? It was just like, but it's, I haven't done anything wrong. And you go, you really? You well, think? I, really? Think, I think two things can be true at once. You know, she has done something wrong yeah. and the lying about it is shocking, but she possibly is also being scapegoated. You know, I think most people understand that when you're in a pandemic, that would create an urgency around procuring goods and services. Yeah. So we had the so-called VIP lane. But if you think about it, the term is really dodgy, VIP, yeah. because MPs and peers could recommend people and, and companies mm. to go into this VIP lane. And it was found in 2020 that billions of pounds worth of contracts did not go through financial yeah. due diligence and the eight-stage checks. Right. There, was quite, there were quite a lot of exposés about it in um, BMJ mm. in 2020. So 
this is not the only company. There are others. No. And we need a this lot more This is actually scrutiny. one of the more respectable yeah. About ones. About conflicts of interest. Yeah. And, and just slightly tangentially, but, you know, related to this, don't forget the SAGE members didn't release their conflicts of interest, financial interest, till 2021, I think, or 2022 even, mm. you know, really late. And she's let the cat out among the pigeons, obviously, yeah. with her comment about Rishi Sunak, who, you know, the hedge fund he co-founded... Um, had a significant investment in Moderna. Now, that's run by Blind Trust, yeah. so he doesn't know, you know, what the investment still is, but he did know it was originally invested. Yes, he did, of course. Sorry, Megan, you wanted to say something as well. I found it really interesting because, yes, she's right, it's not a crime to lie to the press. Um, and be. technically, <laughs> what she's done, as you say, it's... She, she is one of the more innocent ones in the massive... Is it 15 billion of wasted money yeah, on COVID contracts? which we're never going to see again, We're never going to see that gonna money again. And it actually looks like her stuff was total useless because it was the government's fault with right. the contract. But when she said lying is not a crime, yeah. I wanted to shake her. She's so tone deaf. <laughs> You're a member of the House of Lords. Yeah. Like, they don't even... Some of those lords do not see the office that... The technically office that they hold. They're a politician. Yeah. So, actually, if we're questioning whether something is a bit off, mm. you are actually supposed to tell the truth yeah, yeah. about it. I think this is also, Maddie, the, the problem with putting people from business into the House of Lords because yeah. people like Michelle Moan are not used to being told that she's wrong. They're not used to being told that, you know, uh, you can't say that because they've been running companies all their lives and yeah. where they've been in charge. And so anybody that doesn't agree with her gets shoved out the door, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, ever since um, the, the House of Lords reform came in, you know, <laughs> you say what you want about the hereditary peers, but perhaps there wasn't quite that level of often brazen political right. cronyism. You know, right. they were there for a reason that was to do with the their connection with an area. And I'm not saying that we should necessarily go back to the full hereditary peers, but there, there is an awful lot of really kind of grubby appointments mm. that have mm. happened ever since. Yeah. We used to call it sharp practice. Yeah. Where you would kind of go, well, that's a bit kind of dodgy. Oh, and, the, you know, they're all at it. Keir Stum was saying that he wanted to reform the House of Lords and he keeps putting more and more right. people in there. Right. Basically, I think every politician is now too invested in the system as mm -hmm. it currently is. The Lib Dems aren't going to change it because they have so many peers in the House right. of Lords yeah. that they have, like, really... Um, out of all proportion to they their have, political power. Which is why the House influence. of Lords has ceased to be quite as useful as it used to be, because now it's just a kind of a stopping uh, measure, isn't it, for anything that they perceive to be right-wing, which is basically everything. <laughs> um, so they just stop all of it. But the other interesting bit is they've made changes to the laws about suspending and or, you know, firing people, but they still can't really get rid of anyone. Because yeah. I remember the case of Lord Watson, um, who set fire to the curtains at Preston Field Hotel the really? reasons for which vary depending on who you talk to, but he was basically refused to a drink after a big, long dinner. Um, and he thought it'd be a great idea to set fire to the curtains. And unfortunately for him, he was caught on CCTV, went to jail for arson, um, but then came straight back out into the House of Lords. No, but you can get rid of people. You just can't get rid of them posthumously, like Sir Jimmy Savile. Um, but, you know, Moan is... Um, she's a David Cameron appointment, isn't mm. she? Yeah. yeah. Because he put his hairdresser no, into the House yeah, of Lords. No, but you can't... Yeah, but there is no mechanism by which you can actually fire anyone from the House of Lords. It can't be done. Not breaking the code of conduct? Well, yeah, but what is that? Have you seen it? Is it written down? Yes, no, I think so. It's Isn't not. It? <laughs> yeah. And it's so loose, and I hope this now triggers a conversation that we all need to have. A second chamber is essential, yeah. but next we need to go for the lords who have huge um, connections to Russian oligarchs. That is something oh, I would yeah. like to see happen because yeah. it's actually more, probably more serious. Yeah. But I, I will say, like, a word in defence of the lords. I, I spend a lot of time sketching the commons and occasionally I sketch the lords and I always feel like the quality of the debate is significantly higher mm -hmm. and they really 
if they're on a committee, they it's know true. their stuff a lot better than it's the true. equivalent but, Commons but it's one. A very I think we would miss it. But when, it's a very yes. minuscule yeah, number, it's isn't it? Minuscule, it's a minuscule yeah. number of Lords who actually attend those kinds of oh, yeah, debates. Yeah. Yeah. If you could, if you, if what you could say to them is, look, I'll tell you what we'll do. Uh, we'll work it on and we'll, 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 sort of, we'll thin the place out. Yeah. Based on how often you've actually appeared in the last year. You don't get paid if you don't turn no. up. So, so yeah. that sort of is a way of filtering out. There's, yeah. there's kind of yeah. you have to turn up. To but you have to turn up, and you yeah. should have to then be in the debate. Yeah, totally. Rather than just turning up and leaving, which yeah, is yeah, what yeah. some of them used to do. That's true. And I you found to, it very. You can't not attend for six months. No, I think that's one of the grounds. Yeah, for right. the lords. Right. Yeah, but I mean, I find it very weird. I mean, I've now got three friends in the House of Lords, which is quite weird. And when you go down there and, and they refer to them as my lady and my lord, it's all oh, a bit yeah. weird. And one of them um, was actually the first, was the first Minister of Scotland, Jack McConnell. Um, I came in and I said, do I have to call you Lord Jack now? And he went, no, it's fine. I was like, I'm joking. I wasn't going to call you yeah. Jack, actually. <laughs> you know, that's not going to happen. But let me do a Keeping few of real. these messages that we've got. Should Michelle Moore be stripped of her periods? Dell says, yes, in fact, this proves the laws are an expensive waste of money. Privileges for doubtful services tended to those in power. Disgusting. Alice says, no, there are loads of crooked men in the laws, even some who have been to prison. So mm. why should she be penalised? Get rid of the whole rotten bunch and let us vote in a smaller, more effective upper house. Well, I mean, the interesting thing about the fact that she's a woman, she's doing what Gary Lineker's doing to the BBC, to the House of Lords. She's making everybody think this is what it's like, yeah. especially if you're a Tory peer. You're just in there to make a load of money. Well, the thing is, I mean, obviously, we, she, she had been... This had been talked about a lot, but were it not for the absolutely catastrophic interview that she gave, yeah. that she gave, we, we wouldn't be talking about it now. It's kind of right. like the equivalent of the Prince Andrew interview with News. It really Post. is. It's really shooting stuff. I mean, who, stuff. who advises these people? I think before this, perhaps people were seeing this as a kind of sort of Captain Tom-ish situation. Yeah. More serious, for sure. But we, it wasn't really on the agenda so much. Right. But, yeah. I mean, I can see how she could make the point that we were just doing what we thought was the right thing to do. And, of course, we made money because that's what our business does and that's what everybody else does. And his, his argument, the husband, was, well, other people were charging for their PPE as well. And so I'm not quite on the side of those sort of fundamentalist socialist types who say they shouldn't have been making any money during yeah. the pandemic because no, you've got to pay people, not. you've got to pay for people who work for you and all of that. But it's just 60 million quid, it yeah. seems like a bit From a much, contract worth 200 million. Yeah. That's, but, yeah. yeah, this is the tip of the iceberg. So to come back to the first point I was making about all of the financial interests. You know, I remember raising with a couple of MPs quite early in 2020 about to what extent they thought disaster capitalism mm. was rearing its head. And there was a real reticence to call it that because, you know, there's... There's a sort of a cynical view that after a war or an environmental disasters, companies go into profit yeah. and all bad actors go into push policies that they can get away with. And in a pandemic, we're all supposed to be in it together. But it was just completely obvious that yeah. companies would swoop in to make profits. Yeah. I think yeah. this is the tip of the You're iceberg. Right. I mean, don't tell me pharmaceutical companies didn't have huge billion dollar signs yeah. in front mm. of their eyes. Right. Well, I think we need a lot more transparency. I mean, they didn't give the COVID about... vaccine away for free, did they? No, no. about which politics... We still don't know. We haven't seen the contracts. Right. The contracts are secret. Um, and we need to know a lot more about which MPs and peers put companies onto the VIP lane, you know, the right. chumocracy conveyor belt. Mm. We, need to, we need to get to the bottom of all well, of this. Well, didn't Matt Hancock so give his, his, his pub landlord some, yeah. some kind of contract or other? Yeah, yeah, well, like a brother-in-law or sister-in-law or something. Yeah. And Michael yeah, Gove, but, oh, David Meller. Yeah. He, he, yeah. he put David Meller onto the um, onto the VIP yeah. lane, to, didn't he? To be fair, I mean, I think Kate Bingham might have been one of these people too. It didn't. Mm. They didn't all end badly. That was, you know, no. in a, in an yeah. emergency, 
I sort of think it can be, obviously it can be done, conducted in an extremely dodgy way, but there's nothing inherently wrong with saying to people, if you know someone who has a particular yeah. expertise in this area that you think would be good, we're, you know, we're trying to deal with this yeah. extraordinary emergency. But that was when you wouldn't expect somebody the, to go, yeah, I know a woman that makes really you know great what? lingerie, so she can provide some <laughs> yeah. PPE for exactly. people. Exactly, but Laura... Might be a bit racy, but, you know, think, what's the problem? I think that Laura, Laura <laughs> makes such a brilliant point that part of the problem was also just that Every kind of normal scrutiny slowed down. Yeah. Journalists yeah, were not asking yeah. the right press uh, questions. Everything no. became sort of like a bit North Korea esque. Yeah. Everyone singing from the same hymn sheet. Yeah, I blame Peston and his ilk for all that. <laughs> I mean, they were just hopeless and Journal nobody else could get a look in. Yeah, journalists were just kind of seen as if they did ask questions or did ask what something meant with their children, with, with children's schooling yeah. or yes. their grandparents in homes they were just seen as non-believers right. and you didn't want yeah. and you didn't want to lock down and yeah, you didn't want to have restrictions you're trying to kill yeah, people yeah i know it's awful yeah. awful absolutely right. awful so well listen um very spirited to begin with thank you um we've got lots more to talk about coming up in a little while but you're watching the independent republic of mike graham stay right there because after the break we're going to discuss britain's fast food problem let me hear from the uk's fattest man uh, he's calling for access to a life-saving weight loss jab Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Hospital admissions linked to obesity have doubled in six years to more than 3,000 people a day, according to NHS figures. On average, a quarter of adults across the country are obese. Kingston-upon-Hull is listed as the country's fattest town, where almost 40% of residents are obese. And Britain's fattest man, Jason Holton, has told Talk TV that he's afraid he'll die unless he's given a weight loss jab on the NHS. Super morbidly obese and with a BMI more than triple that of an average overweight man. At just 33 years old, Jason Holt says his life is hanging in the balance. His only hope of slimming down and ultimately survival, the weight loss drug, Wagovi. I believe time's over for me in general, but I'm coming up 34 now. I know that I've got to try something. Billed as a game-changer, the so-called wonder drug, also known as semaglutide, has now been rolled out on the NHS. But Jason, who is still on the wait list, insists he should be at the front of the queue. Make it priority for people that really need, that really need it, not people that are just, just chubby or obese, because I don't feel that's the problem. At his peak, Jason was more than 50 stone and describes himself as Britain's fattest man. I did watch The Whale and it felt like a horror movie to me. I said to my mum, I said, don't watch it. I, I turned it off and I started crying. I cried myself to sleep in that film. It was very upsetting for me because now I thought I'm Britain's fattest man. That's what people are going to think of me. He now thinks he's dropped to 47 stone, but has no way of knowing for sure, as doctors simply can't get him on the scales. In fact, during his most recent hospital visit, clinicians considered taking him to London Zoo to use their scanning equipment. I think they're bringing him out now, they're bringing him out of the window now. Over the last few years, Jason's health has rapidly declined as a result of his increasing size. In 2020, he collapsed and had to be airlifted by crane from his mother's third-floor flat by a team of more than 30 firemen and engineers. 
that was the most devastating time of my life. The terrifying part of it all was the amount of people outside. Ever since he's been in and out of hospital and care homes, having suffered a series of life-threatening illnesses. From suspected blood clots to mini-strokes, he's now totally immobile and can barely breathe. Can you just put that one, uh, up, that one on the top up a little bit? Earlier this year, he even came close to organ failure. And after his latest brush with death, Jason moved back into this custom-built council bungalow in Surrey, fitted with specially reinforced furniture. Unable to work, Jason is on benefits and it's estimated his health care has so far cost the taxpayer hundreds of thousands of pounds. Uh, what would try your and be in my shoes. Then, then answer that question. You are deserving yeah. of that money, of taxpayers' money? I believe so. Have you brought this on yourself, do no. you think? No. What would you uh, say kind to of. people? I would say 50% have. His 54-year-old mother, Lisa, lives in the next room and is now his full-time carer. It is very difficult because I can't really lead my life. But, you know, at the end of the day, Jason's my son and I love him very much. Lisa insists Jason was a happy, healthy boy. It wasn't until he became a teenager that she began to notice a problem. He was only 6'12 when he was born. And he was just long and thin. You know, what can you do? You can't control someone completely. So... And he was secretly eating, you believe, as well. That's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Jason blames mental health problems and bullying at school as being behind his weight gain. And he says the death of his father when he was just three years old also had an impact. Maybe if I had my father around, around maybe there would be rules set to what I'm eating and stuff, you know, to stop me from putting things like that in my mouth, you know. Addicted to takeaways and fast food, Jason could consume up to 10,000 calories a day. Just eating constant lamb, don't I mean? I had a problem with energy drinks. I just decided to get like 15 of the uh, Munster cans and drink them all in one go. He now insists he's cut down and is eating healthier, but nothing is working. I've been making changes, which I seriously have for the audience, by the way, I have been my diet now. It's not consistent of loads of junk and I'm not changing. Too heavy for a gastric band, he says Wagovi is now the only answer and if he doesn't get it soon, he may not survive the next two years. Where do you think you'll be in 2025? I could be dead. For sure. Uh, it's a time bomb now. Joining me to discuss the obesity crisis is GP and CEO of the Doncaster Local Medical Committee, Dr Dean Eggett. Dr Dean, good evening. Thanks for joining us. Um, it's always slightly off-putting to watch somebody like that because you know that while probably an awful lot of their problems are brought upon themselves, but you, you get to that point, you get to be that big... Um, you know, it's a very difficult way to get any weight off at all, isn't it? Yeah, there does become this point of no return where the weight causes so many other medical problems, including joint issues, movement issues, breathing issues, that it's quite hard to do any extra exercise that's going to work off some of those calories. And it really does come down to what you eat and how much you eat, yeah. which is mind over matter. But at that point, I suspect you've you've stopped thinking quite so straight. There's this 
really important point of um, cognitive load where when you're really unwell, you, you stop thinking quite straight and can't make the decisions that you and I might might do. Well, exactly right, because you don't get to be that fat. You don't get to be that big. You might say that 40% of people over 45 are, are obese, but to get as big as he is, you would have to be eating pretty much constantly, wouldn't you? Yeah, so weight gain can be a very slow process where actually you might eat a brilliant diet of lots and lots of healthy things, but it only takes one extra apple a day or one small amount per day of a tiny bit of calories. And it soon adds up over a year. So it's very easy for the average person to put on weight, but to put on such extreme weight like Jason has, he he has been eating um, ridiculous amounts of calories, which he himself submits to, which is actually the weight is a symptom of an underlying problem that's going on in his life, which sadly probably could have been nipped in the bud had he had the help somewhat yeah. earlier. Yeah, and I mean, he's got his mother living there with him who is probably helping him to continue to eat the way that he does because usually people like him, I mean, they can't get up and get to the fridge, so presumably somebody has to help him get the food that he puts inside him, um, and it's probably her. It probably is, but... Imagine one of your loved ones sat there uncomfortable with their life, having challenges, saying, I'm starving, I'm hungry, help me. Would you sit there and say, well, no, actually, your life is challenging, but I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to give you the food that gives you the comfort. Well, I don't think, I'll tell you what I wouldn't do is I wouldn't go, I'll just go and order another three kebabs for you. Well, yeah. this problem of weight gain and obesity is very rarely one individual problem. It's a societal problem and a familial problem where when one individual is overweight or obese, it's likely that the entire family has issues with how they eat, the exercise that they do, and the other challenges in life that contribute to weight gain. So Jason, bless him, he's not on his own. He's probably got some family challenges here that's contributing to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm not trying to demonise him. I just think that, you know, if you get to the point that he's at, you know, there must have been several areas and several places where he could have been prevented from getting quite as big as he is, but but clearly that didn't happen. So I suppose you might say there's a failure somewhere along the line um, in the medical world, because looking at this report about the size of Britain, if you like, um, almost all of the worst areas for, for obesity are in the north of England. And in London, they have 10 of the slimmest authorities. So you'd have to assume there's a bit of a north-south divide thing going on here. There is. Obesity is extraordinarily complex. And I'm going to hold my hand up here. I'm, I'm sat in Doncaster talking to you. And Doncaster is in the top 10 for England's obese areas. So I think approximately 75% of adults here are classed as overweight and obese, with around one third of adults being definitely classed as obese. So these people are seriously unhealthy and need help. Um, it's not just about living up north. You know, this is um, much more complex than geography of where you live, but it's mm. about the support of where you live. Do you have access to high quality food? Do you have access to places where you can have active recreation? Can you go to the gym easily? Do you have to drive everywhere? And are you likely to get a good job that's going to pay well, that's going to help you buy decent food and live your life healthy? And like I said, there's this poverty tax of cognition where when you're busy worrying about your life, you stop worrying about food because you're busy worrying about other stuff. So actually the north-south divide is actually a poverty issue 
which is a governmental issue. And I know you've spoken about this before, so I'll be yeah. interested to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, well, I think there's plenty of poor people in London, though. I mean, I live in London, and, I, you know, it's not full of Russian oligarchs driving around in Rolls Royces, you know. I know that's kind of might be the perception. And similarly, um, I wouldn't imagine that all of Doncaster is riddled with people who can't, you know, scrape enough money together to buy some vegetables. So I think it's more than just money. I think it's maybe it's education. Maybe it's something to do with... Um, uh, Attitudes, perhaps? I don't know. But, I mean, there's certainly plenty of local authority money going into places like Doncaster and Liverpool and Leeds and, and Hull. You know, there's plenty of money being spent on, you know, making people aware that they should be eating better. I wonder whether it's more to do with um, the availability of food because when I was younger, back in the 70s, you know, there wasn't fast food really to any great extent. There wasn't much food around. And I was very thin. I went to live in America, which suddenly was this utopia of, eat, of eating, which Britain has now become as well. You know, you walk into a, a petrol station and there's about 55 different versions of, of aero bars that you can buy on the way to pay for your petrol. It didn't used to be like that. And I just wonder if people just can't resist it. You're absolutely right on every single one of those points. You know, 21st century society is that we're all working 24-7, we're all stressed 24-7, and we tend to grab the closest thing to us that's going to make us feel full and happy, even if it's unhealthy, except where you're more educated and you're not worrying about life and you have a little bit more time to say, is this the right thing for me to do? So there is this definite link between people who have challenges in their lives. And that's not just about poverty. That's also about age. That's yeah. about race. That's about geography of where you live. It might even be about your sex. It might even be about your sexual preference and sexual status. Anything that adds increased stress to your life is going to put a tax and a burden upon whether or not you want to concentrate on food and weight mm. and healthiness. So people who live more stressful lives are going to be much more likely to be overweight and obese. That applies to London equally as it does to Doncaster. But you've got to admit, Doncaster is pretty resource poor compared to London. Hence, we have a greater rate of obesity. Yeah. I mean, I went into a coffee shop for the first time in a long time this morning and it shocked me how much it cost to actually have a cup of coffee um, and a Danish pastry for breakfast. Seven quid. I'm so sorry. Are you having a laugh? So, I mean, I don't know where these poor people are getting all this fast food from because it's not very cheap for a start. But let me ask you um, about the, the numbers of people because NHS dealing with 3,000 fat-related admissions every single day. I mean, that's a huge number. 98 billion quid a year. Um, Karen says this to us. It's absolutely shocking. Obese people should pay for their treatment and care... ST says, I'm a bit overweight, but I identify as thin. Yeah, very funny, is what we did. Um, but is there some truth to, to, to what we say, that some people who get themselves into situations should not be getting sort of free treatment on the NHS? Like this Wigovi um, drug, this Wigovi jab that people are asking for, including Jason, Britain's fastest man. Um, is that something that you would advocate for anyone or, or just for sort of extreme circumstances? No, actually, I advocate for access to this style of treatment, this drug for people who are overweight and obese for several reasons, really, because, OK, let's pretend for a brief moment. Let's entertain the concept that it's their fault. Um, they overate. They were a bad person. Let's demonise them. Let's make them really, really bad. Should we say you couldn't have access to this drug? Well, actually, they are a burden to wider society in the sense that they can't work. They're going to require healthcare access. They're going to die early. They're going to need dialysis. They're going to need operations, all of which the taxpayer pays. So even if we're being completely selfish about this, which I should point out, I'm not. I'm just giving an extreme example. I would rather that person be healthy by me paying a tax, giving them the drug, 
helping them to get better than having the burden of them being ill. I'd rather them be healthy and productive in society. So if I'm gonna spend the cash, do I wanna spend it on somebody being healthy and productive? Or do I wanna spend it on somebody who is essentially dying slowly and I have to pay the costs mm. for? Well, I want them to be happy, healthy and productive. That's where I want my money to go. So I'm very happy to use this drug on anybody who will benefit from it. The trouble with that is though, it tends to create a sort of um, a want need society, doesn't it? Because it means that basically you're not responsible for anything you do. I'm not responsible for anything I do. If I get too fat, I'll just come to you and you'll give me some drugs to get thin. Uh, then I can just go out and eat some more. Uh, if I feel like it and get fat again, you'll give me some more drugs. A bit like, you know, rewarding the thief for stealing and saying, don't worry, um, you can just carry on, you carry on stealing and we'll uh, just keep paying for it. Yeah, possibly so. But actually, another way to look at that is that we talked about those boroughs of London that are particularly wealthy, which don't really struggle so much with obesity. The likelihood of the people owning the businesses that selling the fast food and selling the unhealthy chemicals, the drinks and the food to the people in the poorest areas who are getting unwell, it's likely that you're going to own the business if you live in London and you're going to suffer from the business if you don't live in London. So we have this weird, perverse society anyway, which is extraordinarily capitalist and we sell people goods that are going to kill them and make them poorly. Actually, if we're going to nip this in the bud, let's not look at the individual and let's look at how we as a society sell chemicals and drugs to people that are going to make them unhealthy. Let's start pointing the fingers at people who put extra sugar in something to make it extra tasty to get people addicted to it. That's really where the problem lies. So if we're going to look at things like taxing and making things more expensive, let's not make something more expensive for the consumer. Let's make it more expensive for the producer. Yeah. But we've done all that as well, and it hasn't worked. Listen, we can talk about this again, because I think we need to, because there's a lot going on there. But I very much enjoyed it. Thank you very much indeed, Dr Dean Eggett uh, from the um, local medical uh, committee up there in Doncaster. You're watching The Independent Republic and Mike Graham. Up next, we'll cross live to Tel Aviv as the chorus grows louder at the UN for a ceasefire in Gaza. Plus, the IDF uncovers the biggest Hamas tunnel in the Gaza Strip so far. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, for the latest in the Israel-Gaza situation, uh, the Israel Defence Force claims it's found the largest ever Hamas tunnel, big enough for cars to drive through. Let's get the latest from Talk TV's war correspondent, Tom Much, who's live in Tel Aviv for us tonight. Tom, a very good evening to you. Thanks for joining us. Not a problem. Glad as to be we, on. As we look around the world, um, you know, the UN has postponed what was going to be a vote tonight, but there's sort of growing pressure coming from the Biden White House and, and from um, the British government as well to find some kind of solution, some kind of ceasefire, but it doesn't look like Benjamin Netanyahu's going for it. What's the, uh, what's the scene there in Tel Aviv? So it's a, it's a bit of a glum mood at the moment here at the moment. There's a kind of a growing consensus that a lot of what we thought would happen in the war is not actually happening. Hamas are still very, very much entrenched in their strongholds, both in North and South Gaza. The IDF have now been fighting for more, for more than two months, and they still haven't been able to dislodge them. There was a horrible situation where three hostages were killed by their own troops, by IDF forces over the weekend that actually sparked pretty large protests in cities like Tel Aviv and Haifa that we hadn't really seen since October the 7th. 
And there is also the growing sense of complete isolation. Mm. You know, one of the reasons that the UN uh, that the UN uh, General Assembly vote was postponed was because apparently the Americans are coming round to the idea of voting for a motion that would at least include something like a humanitarian pause or a more or a limited ceasefire, which is something that they declined to do so far. So yeah, people are feeling rather grim and a bit pessimistic here at the moment. Yeah, I mean, because we see these tunnel pictures and a lot of people are saying, look, it's all very well saying let's have a ceasefire, but what else is in those tunnels that we don't even know about, that nobody's found yet? And Israel quite rightly says, well, you know, if they hadn't spent all the money that they got over the years on all of these tunnel networks, they might have actually been able to help the population a little bit more instead of spending it all on, on sort of the, the, the terror uh, of a war campaign. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty blindingly obvious that when you look at those tunnels, that many of them could hold plenty of civilians who wanted to shelter from the bombing. Yeah. It doesn't make the bombing any less horrible to look at, but it is very obvious that those tunnels are being used for Hamas commanders, Hamas soldiers, and them alone. Mm. So, and it, this is what people have been in here have been saying for a long time that a lot of the aid money has gone effectively to rockets and to, you know, uh, basically funding Hamas's arsenal rather than it has gone to help the people of Gaza. Now, whether you agree with calls for a ceasefire, you agree with the Israeli bombing campaign or not, I think it is fairly obvious that Hamas has done a very terrible job looking after the people under its control and command. Yeah, no question at all. But in terms of the actual exchange of fire, I assume rockets are still coming into Tel Aviv on a daily basis. Uh, we don't really hear much talk about the hostages anymore. The big hostage story this weekend was the fact that three hostages were accidentally killed by uh, Israeli's defence forces. But I don't hear anything really now in the media about the hostages that are still being held in Gaza. So, actually, uh, Tel Aviv's been fairly quiet recently. Last week we had one big day where there were a lot of rockets fired, but I haven't heard, a, heard an alarm since then, so it's been almost a week, really, since rockets have been fired. It appears a lot of the Hamas arsenal has been fairly well taken care of. Now, the thing about the other hostages is that many of them are either soldiers on active duty that were taken from bases around the Gaza Strip, around the Gaza envelope, or they're young men of fighting age who Hamas are going to say, well, they're soldiers and they're going to, and they're going to demand a much higher price for them mm. in negotiations than they are for the mainly women and children and foreign nationals that were released during the last uh, swap uh, several weeks ago. So, however, apparently the Israeli war cabinet has finally allowed uh, Mossad, the Mossad top negotiator, to go back to Qatar and try and sit down with the intermediaries in the, in the Hamas office in Qatar and try and negotiate a final hostage swap for the remaining hostages. But that is all backroom deals that we don't really have access or foreknowledge of at the moment. No, exactly. Tom, thanks very much indeed. Tom, much they're reporting into us from what he says is a relatively quiet Tel Aviv uh, at the moment when it comes to Hamas rockets. But let's not forget that baby that was taken um, at nine months as a hostage is still being held in Gaza as a hostage, as a baby. So let's not get too carried away uh, with the fact that somehow, you know, it's all Palestinian-related uh, news that we bring you. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We want to hear from you, so pick up the phone and get in touch. Plus, we're going to talk about billions for the net zero push. Hear why I think the government's taking the mic over this nonsense. It's all coming next.
Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for taking the mic. It's hard to know where Rishi Sunak's government stands on most things. One minute, he's congratulating himself on stopping the boats crossing the Channel, and the next one, he's off to Italy to warn us that illegal migrants might overwhelm the entire continent of Europe. Back in the summer, he indicated that he was stepping back from previous government commitments to net zero, suggesting that the planned conversion to electric cars by 2030 might just not work that decommissioning all petrol and diesel vehicles might not actually be a very good idea. He even went so far as to reopen negotiations for contracts to do more drilling for oil and gas in the North Sea. So far, so sensible. But this week, I'm afraid, he's let the side down again. Only this morning I discovered that the push to make you put a heat pump in your house is back on again. And not only is it back on, but they're using your money to pay for it. That's right. £1.5 billion of your own money, to be precise. The boiler upgrade scheme is to receive the huge injection of taxpayers' cash thanks to a recommendation from the, wait for it, National Infrastructure Commission, who have called this a sensible and welcome move. Well, they would, wouldn't they? The money will fund an extra 200,000 heat pump installations, despite the fact that we know an awful lot of people who have installed them and have been highly dissatisfied with how they work. Under the scheme, homeowners can claim up to seven and a half grand to cover the cost but most installations are more expensive than that. So who knows just what the benefit of all this public money is for, aside from the virtue signalling bit, of course. And if you think that's expensive, it's only part of the plan. There's another four and a half billion quid coming in the form of a package of support for other net zero projects, including a social housing decarbonisation fund and a new local authority retrofit scheme for low-income homes to fund bigger radiators and better insulation. I'm sorry, but this is just a bloody racket now. The net zero nutters know they failed on so many fronts in the private sector that now they're getting their mitts on the bloated local authorities and the rest of the public sector, where you can spend taxpayers' money like water with barely any scrutiny. I've been saying it for years that we should not be putting up with this. The only people who have willingly installed heat pumps in this country are likely to be better off working from home champagne socialist types with more money than sense. Oh, and you'll need a decent-sized garden as well. What a colossal waste of time. Surely they'd be better off building more houses instead. Just the thought. Now, lots of you have been getting in touch, so let's hear from your first uh, views of the night. Roger is in Hounslow, wants to talk about the Bibby Stockholm situation. Roger, very good evening to you. Good evening, Mike. What can I do for you, sir? Hasn't been a resounding success, has it, this BB Stockholm? Not exactly, no. <laughs> I mean, in no <laughs> way, got... shape or form has any part of it been a success. Well, you've got so many men in their 20s and 30s going for many months without a bit of, um, can I say this word, nookie, and then, you know, it must be difficult for anyone. Well, it must be. I mean, according to the story I've seen in The Sun tonight, they say that there's been hundreds of people in and out of the barge over time, but I don't think at any one time there's been more than about 35 or 40 people in there. But, I mean, if this turns out to be uh, a story which goes further and they charge these characters, um, you know, people are going to shake their heads and go, well, we told you so. Absolutely. That's exactly what's going to happen. I mean, when I was in my 20s, you know, I lived in Arizona for yeah. about four years. And, um, you know, there was parties every night. I just don't understand how men at that age can, you know, go maybe years even without... 
Well, I mean, what I find astonishing as well is the fact that they go on these, you know, trips into town, whether it's Weymouth or whether it's somewhere else, and at the end of the day, um, they're going out to bars and nightclubs and places where you need to have money to spend, and they seemingly have money to spend. So uh, we'll bring you more on all of that, of course, as it goes. Thanks very much, Roger. We'll take more of your calls coming up as well. Um, Sam says, uh, while this is tragic, this is talking about... Uh, one of the deaths, of course, of one of the people on there. Uh, he entered the country illegally and expected five-star treatment. We're not here to roll out the red carpet. So uh, we'll have more on that coming up in the next hour. Henry Bolton's going to be here. You're watching The Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham. More on that exclusive Sun story, as I said. More about uh, the revelations that somebody uh, possibly committed suicide. Plus, why Meghan and Harry Sussex's royal website has not been deleted, despite a promise to do so in 2020. Good evening. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker. Tonight, Rishi Sunak gets tough on migration again. The Prime Minister warns that illegal migrants will overwhelm Britain unless global refugee laws change. Plus, why has Meghan and Harry Sussex royal website still not been deleted despite a promise in 2020? And pressure is building on Gary Lineker as MPs demand that the sports pundit is gagged online in the lead-up to the general election. Now, do you agree with the new Common Sense Minister, Esther McVeigh? She reckons that public spending on diversity consultants is wasteful. A bit late for that, isn't it? Get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones as well, 0344 499 calls will cost the national rate. Now, let's talk about those ghastly people from Montecito. They called it Finding Freedom. They flew the nest that was holding them in such disregard, rebel royals in a gilded cage... Well, that was what they would have you believe. When Harry and Meghan took off for a new life in the new world of North America, they vowed to leave such pedagoguery behind. After all, if they weren't going to be working royals, they would have no need of the trappings of the institution. You might remember the row over the website they set up called Sussex Royal, something they didn't bother mentioning until it was actually completed. They explained that they were hoping to augment their Instagram account with the website and market all sorts of ropey merchandise through it. The Queen was said to be somewhat shocked when they did it, and after an exchange of views, they agreed in spring of 2020 not to use that brand anywhere ever again. The view from the royals was that the gruesome twosome couldn't just pick and choose which bits of the family they could publicise and sell to help themselves. But surprise, surprise, the website's still there, and it includes a section on serving the monarchy, which hasn't been updated since the late Queen died. It also makes no mention of Harry's dad becoming king. All very strange, you might think but it looks like the website has just been abandoned and left hanging. Meanwhile, Harry and Meghan released their Christmas card, which is a picture of the two of them at the Invictus Games, minus the children. One thing's for sure, they won't be at Sandringham with the rest of the royals this year. Another year, another missed opportunity. Later on in the show, we'll be bringing you a first look at tomorrow's front pages. But before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at the Sun newspaper. And they've gone big uh, on that kid who was found last week in France, having been missing for six years. He's 17 years old now. Uh, his name is Alex. He's breaking his silence. He's on the front page of the Sun. Uh, he turned up in France after vanishing on holiday in 2017, along with his mum and dad. But he's now been reunited with his gran in Oldham. 
and he was said to have told French prosecutors that his granddad had died. Cops say there is every possibility he might still be alive. He just says, I'm just happy to be home for Christmas. He was effectively kidnapped uh, by his mother um, and taken to what was called a kind of a retreat of some kind in Spain. Anyway, we'll do more of that uh, with the panel. Right now, though, Britain is under attack from rogue nations that are using migration as a weapon, driving people to the shores of Britain to overwhelm and destabilise her. That is what the Prime Minister had to say, speaking at a political festival on Thursday. Criminal gangs will find ever cheaper ways to ply their evil trade. They will exploit our humanity and they think nothing of putting people's lives at risk when they put them in these boats at sea. And our enemies will also see that we are unable to deal with this and then they will so increasingly use migration as a weapon, deliberately driving people to our shores to try to destabilise our societies. So if we do not tackle this problem, the numbers will only grow. It will overwhelm our countries and our capacity to help those who actually need our help the most. To discuss this, I'm joined by former UKIP leader Henry Bolton. Henry, good evening to you. Good Welcome evening. to the Independent Republic. Now, you and I have had many conversations mm -hmm. about this. Quite recently, actually, we talked about my surprise at finding out that there were sort of sub-Saharan Africans turning up on the, uh, uh, the shores of the United States, turning up in Tijuana, turning mm -hmm. up on the border uh, between Mexico and the United States, yep. somehow having made their way across the Atlantic um, by some means or other yep. um, to places like Venezuela, to places like, um, you know, El Salvador. Is he actually saying what I was saying, that this is somehow a global business, which is maybe not just a business, it might actually be more sinister than that? It's very much a global business. Yeah. Um, it, it requires, for the organised crime groups to operate, mm. it requires a certain amount of involvement from state or state actors, yeah. police, border guards, uh, politicians and yeah. so on. And so that's part of it. But also uh, we've got countries and, if you like, non-state actors such as before Al-Qaeda, um, you've got Islamic State, you've got other terrorist groups um, operating, particularly across the Sahel and yeah. Maghreb um, in, in, in Africa, sort right. of below Libya, if you like, for, mm. for people who aren't familiar with the geography. Um, and so you, you have them acting, but you've also got, as the Finns have quite rightly highlighted recently, you've got the Russians have been pushing people across into Finland. They are well aware, the Russians particularly, that the European Union, Europe, is, has been very liberal, has had a very liberal approach to migration, yet is suffering internal social tensions. Mm. Uh, you know, it's not just here in the UK, it's in Germany, it's in Belgium, it's in France, it's, it's all over. It's everywhere, isn't and, it? And they are trying to in increase that pressure because they want to destabilise countries. Now... Uh, in, in Western Europe, because they want to distract us mm. from the effort of supporting Ukraine. Now, um, if one if one's, wants to dig a little bit deeper into that, I think, and this is quite, uh, you know, this is something I would want to investigate if I was the security service. Um, when you've got parties like the Socialist Workers' Party who are funding and helping to organise uh, protests on our street, the Palestinian pro-Palestinian yeah. protests and so on, are we actually looking at a, a programme of subvers subvers subverting, subverting sorry, um, the United Kingdom yeah. and other European countries that is a, a, an organised programme undertaken by yeah. the Russian Federation? I think you would find the answer is yes. Mm. So this is, this is asymmetric warfare. Yeah. And 
to think it's not going on is is really incredibly negligent yeah. or naive or both. Now, when I was involved on the ground in dealing with organised crime groups, many of them had links to governments. Mm. And, you know, I'm, it, I could name them, um, but it would probably be unwise to do so because then you'll just have sort of yeah, people yeah. saying, well, show me the evidence. Yeah. I was working on the front line in intelligence work on the ground uh, and tactical operations to go and disrupt organised criminals across the Southern Balkans. And absolutely, there were embassies supporting, mm. of certain countries, supporting those crime groups yeah. because they had an agenda of destabilisation or furthering their particular agenda in that country. Right. So there's a lot of that goes on. What I find quite stunning about the Prime Minister's speech is that He's not realised this before. No. Um, well, this is it. I mean, he certainly <laughs> had this road to Damascus conversion. I mean, first of all, he was going to stop the boats. Then he was going to slow them down a bit. Now he claims he's, he's managed to stop a few of them. Um, but he suddenly turned into this kind of, you know, um, what you might call conspiracy theorist who's now going on about how there are some dark forces at work making sure that the West is destabilised. I'm not saying he's wrong, mm. but, you know, previously, whenever I've said it or other people have said it, you've been questioned as, as some kind of nutcase. What, and you're going, well, why would they do it? Well, what I suspect now is that... Uh, and I, Because this is a... It is a real danger... It's a real risk out there, a threat, mm. um, as I say. What I suspect because Grant Shapps, as Defence Secretary, has, has, has said something similar. And Sorry, I, I still find it quite difficult to take that as a serious <laughs> statement. You know, Grant Shapps, Defence Secretary... I know, go, I know. Sorry? <laughs> when did that happen? <laughs> but, yeah, but putting that I, aside, I mean, we talk, yeah, I know, I know. talk about the politics yeah. of, the, of the government, if, if you want, because, the, you know... But um, he said something similar, and I suspect the security service or somebody has given them a briefing yeah. and said, you know what, people, you need to wake up. Yes. You're in the driving seat here... And there is a problem. Mm. Um, and I think they've, they've sort of started to, to sense a little bit of reality. In addition, of course, there is the political agenda. Uh, there's a, an election coming up around about 12 months from now. Yeah. Sunak's under huge pressure with Rwanda. Rwanda is, is a flawed concept. Mm. Rwanda will not deliver what he wants it to deliver, but he is now in a political bind. He's in, a, in this fight to get the, the legislation through Parliament. Um, I would not support it as a Member of Parliament, a Conservative Member of Parliament, or any Member of Parliament. It will not deliver, it will not deter the migrants, it will not dis no. deter the organised crime groups, and at the same time, he's, it, it, legally, he's going to be letting himself open for all sorts of problems going forward with the way that the law is drafted. It's a flawed concept, mm. um, but in a sense, what he says now is correct. Do I believe that he's going to act on it? Because my answer to him is, mm. OK, stop talking about yeah, it yeah. and damn well do something well, about exactly it. Well, exactly right. Because you, your job is to protect the British people and the British nation against these threats yeah. that you keep talking about yeah. and you're doing sod all about exactly it. Exactly right. Because it begins, in fact, funnily enough, you mentioned Libya, mm. it begins for an awful lot of these people in Libya, doesn't it? Because the Russians are quite um, well-versed in, in, in dealing with African nations. They've got the Wagner group down Indeed. there on a regular basis in all sorts of different you know, towns and cities and regions, and you've got wars going on there which people are moving away from. But they come from Libya into a boat. There was a, a sinking just recently mm -hmm. where a lot of people died. Uh, come to Lampedusa, thousands of people a day, and then into Italy, then into Germany, then into France, then to Britain. You know, it's not that difficult to work out how it's going and where it's coming from, but they need to get better, surely, at fighting criminal gangs who are much cleverer, it would seem, than every government. There are, there are three things you need to, to do it, really. Mm. You need the intelligence. Now, we have 
pared back our intelligence in these areas significantly over the last 15 years or so. Um, problem number one, that needs to be re-established. Yeah. It takes a long time to re-establish the relationships you need for mm. human intelligence um, to work properly. Um, you then need the will to act on that intelligence, yeah. which is about the political guts, determination, mm. uh, and understanding of the problem to deal with it. And then you've got to deal with the politics as well, which is part of the will, I suppose, but the political navigation of it here in the UK. Because in the UK, if you went, as I would advocate, hunting these organised crime groups in the Sahel and the Maghreb yeah. and treating them as they deserve to be, as terrorists who, who kill people, mm. who destroy lives, who destabilise states, and actually, a lot of the time, are associated with terrorist groups and fund them through praying protection yeah. or whatever it might be, um, go after them, hunt them down, destroy them, because they are... They're as bad as any terrorist group, mm. as say they are associated. Um, but you've got to have the will and the determination to do it. If you like, Russia, with the Wagner Group, has gone out there and done it, and is making, is turning it the other way around. Mm. They're making migration work for them against their opponents, ourselves. Yes. We need to. If, we, if we're going to sit here and allow the woke brigade to say, no, you can't hunt these poor people mm. down. You have to put them in front of a jury. You have to then we're going to lose this. Well, of course, because they're already now offering Christmas discounts for people to come here. Um, whenever there's a, there's a ruling like there was from the Supreme Santa Court... Yeah, well, as, as, as long as there's a ruling from the Supreme Court coming out, it's immediately it's on yeah. TikTok. You know, we found out, for example, uh, today, the Sun have got this story that two people have been quizzed about a possible sex attack in a bar in Weymouth, mm -hmm. two people living on the Bibby Stock home. We also saw last week, and I got this information, funnily enough, and it was poo-pooed by the Home Office, that the person who had committed suicide was in fact an Albanian, mm -hmm. um, because they were trying to make out that it wasn't an Albanian when, when the question was put to them. Uh, they didn't want to give out any information. Yep. They, put, they bring the shutters down. They completely and utterly disregard any freedom of information requests. They just don't want to tell well, you the truth about what what's going on. They're actually in denial themselves. Yeah. This is, they don't want to accept the reality because then they have to deal with it. Mm. Um, and actually, uh, talking about the reality, and you've mentioned Italy and North Africa, the Italians, or the southern coast of, the, of Europe, has received about a quarter of a million mm. asylum seekers yeah. in the last 12 months. Right. We have received, coming across the Channel, somewhere between an eighth and a tenth of that. There are 26 nations in the right. European Union. We're getting more than our fair share. And that, that always moves through. Mm. So as the numbers increase across the Mediterranean, it's no good the Prime Minister or, or the Home Secretary standing there and saying, yes, but look, you know, our, our, the rate of, our, of people crossing the Channel has reduced, mm. and, uh, but it's, it's increased in yeah. places like Italy, so right. aren't we doing well? No, you are not, because that flow is going to come towards us. Yeah. It will feed through. It does every year. Yes. And that flow, we don't know who they are. They come from, and I'm sorry, but it's the reality. They yeah. come from cultures that have different social values and different behavioural yeah. sort of uh, habits than, than we do here. Right. And when you bring them in... And many of them view women in a very different way, right? Absolutely. Let's just say it. You know, uh, it's not against the law to say that. Women, other people's property, yeah. um, you know, just de decent behaviour by our standards. Mm. It, you know, they have different, a different approach. It's there a different society. I don't necessarily judge it, but what you have, and it is idiotic, it is ridiculous for anybody to say that when you put different cultures together without any form of integration or assimilation, which we don't have in this country, then you are going to have 
a friction yes. between... Because, again, you're not allowed to talk about assimilation and integration because that Indeed. would be to suggest that people might be different from one another. But the people in Weymouth are talking tonight to The Sun, saying, if it was hundreds of British blokes stuck on a barge, I wouldn't like it either. But the yeah. fact is, it's not hundreds of British blokes, it's hundreds of people from other countries, many of whom have come without any identification, who might be criminals, you know, who might be terrorists, but who certainly might have, you know, very dubious ideas about, you know, how to treat women. And now we've got an, a, a, an allegation of, of a sex attack. We don't even know who these people are. We don't. And what we also don't know is how on earth they get to roam around in bars in Weymouth. Where's the money coming? Who's giving them the money to go out in a bar? Well, indeed. I mean, you know, but they're, they're getting allowances, but there's probably money coming in from working for sort of delivery companies and whatever as well. But... Um, the, but that's the supposed to be is, illegal, though. It, it is, it is, but we're not doing anything about it because no. the government... Uh, I've said this before, I think, to you, Mike, that you know, back in 2010, David Cameron, who's now our Foreign Secretary, could you believe it, um, and Theresa May, his Home Secretary, cut the police by about 21,000. Yeah. We all know that. Yeah. But what isn't widely known... But that's known, not a problem, necessarily, what, No, is it? but what isn't, what isn't widely known is that they also cut the immigration and asylum s staff... Um, uh, equally. Yeah. So what we've... And it's not been built up again now. So what we need is the political will to, re to recognise this, the political will to do something about it, and the resourcing put in place mm. to actually enact that will yes. and that determination. None of that is in place. And at the moment, communities are getting more and more worried. And I, I understand that. And they are right to be more worried. The Prime Minister and the government, this Prime Minister particularly... Mm doesn't get it. He keeps talking and he's doing nothing. And, uh, you know, people who know Suala Braverman know that she, when she... She's got absolutely the right intent. But when you've got a prime minister that's not actually supporting that, doesn't really get it, doesn't really... You know, well, he's got other doesn't priorities. It. It, it, then it's very difficult mm. for a Home Secretary to move forward because they need the prime minister's support because this is a cross-government effort. So th I honestly believe that Rishi Sunak has to go... There might be an election in a year's time, but can we put up with this for another year? I, I, every no. day that goes past, the situation gets deeper, mm. more intractable, more complex, mm. and requires a more dramatic, drastic uh, solution to it. Yeah. So the government needs to get together. It's a whole-of-government approach that's needed, not one government ministry or department. Um, you know, we've not got the Home Office and the Foreign Office and the Ministry of Defence and the intelligence agencies. They're not probably joined up together mm. because we've got a, a, a Prime Minister who is incapable of leading that effort. And I think Number 10 is, is unable to support yeah. him in doing so. I think so. the wheels are just spinning and they're going absolutely nowhere. Henry, listen, we could talk about this for a lot longer, but we can't because I've got to run. Uh, we're going to do something <laughs> else. Not to worry. Moving on. Um, eat your heart out, Elon Musk and NASA. And anyone else that thinks heading up into space is a long way off for all of us, because now it looks like we have our very own spaceport. It's in the Shetlands. That's right. We're going to have our own Cape Canaveral on the northernmost tip of Britain. It's called Saxavord Spaceport, and it'll be coming to an advert near you soon. It's the first time in history that the Civil Aviation Authority has granted permission for vertical space launches, and it's being hailed as an era-defining moment. The first launches could be as soon as 2024. You might remember the failed attempt by Virgin Orbit back in January, which took off from Newquay. But that was a horizontal launch that could only be made by a plane with a rocket fixed under its wings. This is an entirely new ball game. So if you're ready, it's to infinity and beyond. And maybe 
We could send some of the migrants there. Maybe that's the answer. Uh, you're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up, nightmare weekend for the Beeb as former host Sue Barker speaks out after a question of sport is axed. Plus, MPs warn BBC bosses to clamp down on Gary Lineker's social media use again. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Lots of you have been getting in touch and you can have your say on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, of course, 0344 499 uh, Let's talk to Doug, who's in Cardiff, wants to talk about the Bibby Stockholm. Hi, Doug. Hi, Mike. How, How are you, you doing? doing? Yeah, I'm good. What do you want to tell me? Yeah, yeah, about the Bibby Stockholm. Um, yeah. Um, you know, when they go off and off, on and off the barges. Yeah. Hello? Yeah, I'm still here. Carry on. Yeah, yeah. Um, why can't they, like, chaperone these people on, on the buses and uh, maybe put bromide in their teeth? Well, I don't know where they're going. I mean, why would, why would you know, where are they taking them? You know, you're going, like, sort of go off into Weymouth for the night. You know, I mean, I've been to Weymouth. It's not, it's not that exciting, but it might be quite exciting for them. Um, I've never seems... been there. It just seems to me to be an odd thing to do. How about you just don't let them off the, the, the barge? Well, I think, like, you know, uh, they, they have to have a bit of exercise and stuff like that. But, you know... Well, they, they could run around the barge, couldn't they? I mean, it's a big enough barge. I don't know. I haven't been there. I, I don't really know. But, yeah, but I mean, yeah. what they shouldn't be doing is taking them into town and going, look, here's 20 quid. Um, you know, come back to the bus when you've run out. I'll put it this way. That'll be about two points there. <laughs> yeah, well, probably, yeah. But that's. But it just seems then, ludicrous. The whole thing seems ludicrous and ridiculous. Thanks for your call. Let's talk to John uh, in West Lothian. Hi, John. Good evening, Mike. Evening, sir. What, what can I do for you? Uh, I'd like to talk about the Gaza situation. Yeah. Um, first of all, I don't think anything uh, is going to be brought to halt unless you can cut off the money and the weapons going in from Iran. Because yeah. they're clearly out to destabilise the whole region, irrespective of what happens. Yes. And I can understand why Israel is very reluctant about having a ceasefire. Mm. So, well, so can I. So what is the United Nations doing about it? In, in other conflicts that's happened around the world in previous years, they've put in blue helmet. But for that to work... Yeah, but to be honest, the UN has been pretty useless over the last few decades at doing anything. I mean, the blue helmets they put in uh, to Ethiopia were useless. The blue helmets they put in largely into um, former Yugoslavia didn't work either. Yeah, I, I accept that to, to, to a degree. But if, if this is going to work, A, to give Israel uh, the uh, comfort that they need, they, some of them needs to come from countries that truly support Israel, but also to give... Well, there aren't the any of the UN, are there? Well, there are some. Uh, but to also to give uh, the Palestinians some sort of comfort. You've got to have a, a multinational force that are made up of other Arab countries who also want to stabilise the region, Saudi, Jordan, whatever. Mm -hmm. and, and that would give comfort to the, the younger elements of uh, the Palestinians going forward that after the war is ended, and it will have to end at some stage, that it will be run by a joint force that will be able to rebuild it, that will be able to de-radicalise the younger element going forward. It has to be a multinational thing that, that suits all parties. 
and and so far, as you know, as you said, and you know, and I've said as well, that the, the United Nations is doing absolutely nothing. They talk a good story, but they actually do nothing at the end no. of the day, and that's the only way that this can be brought to save lives. Well, exactly right. And you say there's plenty of countries that support Israel, and maybe there are, but at the UN, uh, the last time they had a vote on a ceasefire, it was vetoed by the US, and we abstained. And that was the only two votes that weren't for a, for a ceasefire. Yeah, well, I, I don't believe in um, abstentions anyway, because it, the, the number of times you sit on the fence, um, you're just going to embarrass your doctor by having to get all these splinters taken out. So... <laughs> Well, that's so, very you know, true. Just ask Keir so, Starmer. I mean, imagine if he was yeah. in charge. You'd have no charge, oh, Mr. would you? Mr. Mr. Flip-Flop, yeah, exactly. he would, he would exactly. definitely be... Listen, John, listen, thanks for your call. Uh, we've got to run because we've got loads to do. We've still got plenty of stories to look at in the papers. The panel's coming back. Uh, but next, um, a truly heart-wrenching story. A 20-year-old donkey called Winston has been stolen from his family home in Wales. His owners fear Winston could die from heartbreak as donkeys are known to suffer from separation anxiety. Sometimes even proving fatal. And this donkey, by the way, has got a partner. Uh, it's 20 years old, and the partner is apparently pining for Winston. And there's a little girl involved as well, um, who's called Bella, and she's got a beautiful picture of herself here that I'm just looking at, uh, where she's got the donkey there. There's another one where she's in between the two donkeys. She has actually sent a letter to Santa asking for the donkey to be returned. I mean, they think it's been stolen, believe yeah. it or not, for a nativity play. No. Yeah, no. yeah they yeah. do. They're not sure. Um, the whole situation is going on in Carmarthenshire in Wales. Uh, the Doran family are offering a £1,000 reward for the return of oh, Winston. Dear. And he's a former Blackpool donkey as well. Oh. So he's already been rescued once. Yeah, yeah. Well, my, my family have a donkey, actually. Do you? Which was rescued. Right. Um, been mistreated by... Well, we think it was by men because... For like six months, he wouldn't let any man right. go near him, so only women could feed him. Oh wow! He was terrified. Yeah, he's a sweet. He's Donkeys are really, heart. really beautiful. They're animals. affectionate they and, and delightful. Um, it just breaks my heart to think yeah. of poor Winston. I think, I think the Christians putting on that nativity show, who stole the donkey, have somehow missed some of the essential messages. Well, we, not, we don't know. If <laughs> for, we don't know if that's for sure what's happened. <laughs> yeah. they, 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 they fear that that's what's happened. And funnily yeah. enough, since I've been looking into this story. People tell me that they, they, they see real donkeys all the time in these kind of nativity scenes. Yeah. In various little towns around Well, it Britain. doesn't matter as long as yeah. they're being looked after and they haven't been stolen. Yeah. You know? It's, uh, it's that's the, the real problematic bit, not the nativity play. <laughs> yes. No, the nativity play's fine. I haven't got a problem with that. But if you're nicking a donkey to oh, be yeah, in it, it's like we're... stealing somebody's baby yeah. to go, we must have a real baby Jesus. No, don't yeah. worry, we'll just nick one, you know. Some real gold. Yeah, that's some real gold. Men. Where would you get any murder? That would be my question. <laughs> I've never known what don't that is. I don't even know what it is, yeah. It's like ointment, I think. Yeah. I think. Anyway. Yeah, you're right, anyway, it is. It is. I don't think they sell it at the local chemist. Um, here on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, uh, we've got loads coming up. Um, but after the break, the panel are going to be staying in place. They're all alongside me. Uh, we'll have a first look at all tomorrow's front pages. But let's talk about Gary Lineker before we do that. Um, Gary Lineker um, is, of course... Uh, back in trouble because apparently MPs are now saying he should be silenced before the election, which I think is a bit of a step too far, actually. I mean, I'm not a great fan of Gary Lineker spouting off and I don't think he should do it. 
Yeah. I don't think the MPs should be calling him to be for him to be silent. I mean, they? they do raise an interesting point. It's the election part is um, a, a little pointless. Um, fans of Gary Lineker are yeah. going to be his fans regardless, but it's he can't keep getting away with it. He can't. Really. Mm. No. It's not fair on every like He's the twenty-year-old interns he? that work at the BBC who aren't allowed to tweet anything. Right. Yeah. It's not exactly sending the right message. Why is no one else allowed to do it? Apart from Gary Lineker, right. it's weird. Well, they got rid of Carol Vorderman, you know, and presumably because she's not worth as much to them as, as he is, because she was being quite vitriolic about the Tories. Um, he's a little subtler than she is, I must say. But, but yeah, I mean, I just think he's bringing the, the, the BBC down with him. He's dragging them all sort of into the gutter, isn't he? He's got... He's just got too much power there, you know, mm. they organise a walkout if, yeah. if, he's, un, if he's under threat. I, I do think, I, I don't think any MPs have actually called him specifically to be silenced, and, and that does sound rather sinister if you put it that way. Well, they're way. saying he should be silenced before is, the election. They are saying he shouldn't he be allowed is, to, to tweet. He is breaking the rules, although yeah. the rules kind of change in regards to Gary Lineker, mm. don't they? Yeah, they do. That's mm. the trouble. I mean, every time he's in trouble, they find a reason not to punish him. You know, because last time it was like, oh, well, it's all right, because it was an open letter that he wrote. It wasn't <laughs> social media. And then when he went on social media, they kind of went, um, well, you know, it's OK, we think it's all right. <laughs> it's probably just about, you know... And then Samir Shah said he'd broken the rules. But, the, you know... The thing about Gary Lineker is that he does make the BBC look really bad, and there are lots of people who diligently work at the BBC and they're very angry because they have to abide yes. by these rules and he's bringing them all into disrepute and, and, and so, forth, so on and so forth. But... I think for MPs to get involved, I mean, basically, Gary Lineker is just a, a bit lame. You know, he kind of jumps on every bandwagon in yeah, a not very intelligent way. No. And actually, I think if you start getting into the kind of, kind of slightly sort of react, reactionary, get him off my screens, it just kind of gives him more importance right. than he deserves, perhaps. Well, well exactly is, right. He's very well paid, isn't he? Now, I don't yeah. watch his shows, I'm not really into football, so I'm not the right person to comment on whether mm. he gives value for money. But there was... Um, <laughs> there was a, a calculator. Take your so you, word could, for it. you work out, you could work out how much value you get for paying a BBC tax. It was in the Telegraph, actually, your yeah. paper, Madeline. And um, out of the £169 licence fee, yeah. I get £15 worth of value really? based on the amount of BBC that I consume. Yes. But, you know, I'm still having to pay for his right. salary. Mm. And, of course, lots of shows are being axed or being threatened with being axed because of the licence fee. Why not get rid of some well, of the most expensive presenters? Well, that's yeah. rather than right. I mean, One of the most recent things to be, to, be, to be closed down is a question of sport, which um, you're all probably too young to remember I loved when that. it used I to be it. good. It yeah. no, but when it was what, really... with, like Ali McCoy. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. There, John there were Parrish. several incarnations of it which were quite yeah. funny. I and... loved it when it was the... yeah. good in the noughties, I remember. Yeah, and mm. when it was around, I think it started probably long before, two decades before that. But I mean, they did the, the, the dreaded kind of getting rid of Sue Barker yeah. because she was an older woman. They yeah. clearly thought this is the wrong demographic. We better get some younger people oh, in, yeah. which is what they do on every they television all, show. They do all and the every time. time they do it, yeah. it just dies a death because people don't want to watch, you know, people like that. Well, the trouble like is that. that they've got this idea there's a kind of fabled, mythical El Dorado of all these young people yeah. who are going to start watching the BBC, even though young people consume all media in a completely different way. Yeah. And the BBC seems to be, like, allergic to dancing with the one that brung you, you know, yeah. the people that watch and listen yeah, to it yeah. every day. It's, mm -hmm. It sort of often almost feels like it's trying to alienate that audience deliberately. Well, that's right. It's the wokists that do it. I mean, it's like <laughs> Doctor Who has now gone so ridiculously crazy and, uh, you know, in one direction about, you know, is Doctor Who gay? Is Doctor Who a woman? Is he a man? Is he, you know, some kind of mixed pronoun? Nobody cares. It's Doctor yeah. Who. <laughs> Just do it as a, you know, science fiction show. Well, I don't care. I just wish I didn't have to pay for it. 
that's that's the annoying thing. I think it really needs to streamline its output and its expensive presenters. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I just think it, it needs to go back to its first principles, you know, Reethe and stuff. That they used to be such... I think I still have this kind of abiding affection for the BBC mm. because yeah. I compare it to the BBC that I grew up with rather than the one it currently is because I don't even watch it very often nowadays. Right. But mm. I think of the great documentaries I watched growing up. History, I learned so much about history. All of that's gone, yeah. All that yeah. stuff. If you watch a documentary now, it usually has some kind of very obvious political agenda mm. and it's dumbing down and not treating its audience yeah. with respect. And that's the thing. I mean, Joey Barton, uh, who was in the news last week having a go at various, you know, appointment of women to do football shows that he doesn't think, he says uh, he thinks football focus is going to be next because he just thinks it's dreadful because it's now very much more focused on women's football than it was on men's. I mean, I was listening to somebody complaining about it. They didn't do the Scottish Cup final because, you know, they rather had only had time to do women's football. And you just kind of go... Well, why, I mean, if you really want to do women's football, why can't you just do both? Why do you have yeah. to put one in yeah. instead of, you know, knocking something else out? Mm. And it just is... It, oh, the only the problem for me with the BBC now is oh, we only ever talk about things that have gone wrong. Yeah. You hardly ever go, oh, there's a great new series on the BBC. Yeah. I mean, the new one that's, that's out, Vigil, is it? You know, they've got these two... Um, I happen to notice <laughs> it was on last night. Peter Hitchens wrote about it. Oh. Um, and it's the new sort of TV cop drama. But, of course, the two women detectives in it are lesbians. And you go, OK... It wouldn't normally matter, except for the fact that somebody's done that deliberately. It's the constant you know, shoehorning. It's just a sort of constant, yeah. yeah. Constant shoehorning. And, of course, you know, we know it's deliberate. You know, I've talked before in your yeah. show, Mike, about the Nudge Unit reports, where they talk about using television for social engineering. It's not a new yeah. thing. It's just it's very unsubtle, very clunky. Um, People can see through it. They're bored of it. You know, it's like the same with the soap operas as well. You know, there's yeah. no better way to wash your brain than watching EastEnders these days. Right. Well, I mean, I'm always reminded by Kevin O'Sullivan about when they had the European night in Walford Square or whatever it's called, you know. Um, oh, really? In EastEnders. Did they? Yeah. No. They had a Euro night. Oh, no. And this was, like, Square. around the time of the Brexit <laughs> referendum. Because, yeah. I mean, I haven't watched EastEnders for probably a decade. Isn't it Albert Square? Albert Square, sorry. <laughs> well, it's, well, it's the name of the town is Walford. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about, yeah. Uh, Albert Square, yeah, and they had sort of European flags flying in the pub and all this, and people were going, sorry, yeah. what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. You know, even yeah. if it was a genuine classic, sort of classic East End... Classic East End behaviour. Yeah, I love a bit of Euro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love going over to I'll Brussels. take down my West Ham Me. flags and put the EU <laughs> yeah. Conversations yeah. about the vaccine during COVID were the most awkward, weird bits of script writing yes. about, oh, are you going to have that and be a superhero? Yes, are you going... It was just... It was, oh, just, it was right. weird. It was, yeah. it was icky. Yeah. It's very sort of um, glorious leader, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. It's a bit sort of well, dull. Well, I'm glad you brought me to that because she's saying it's wasteful that we're spending all this money on diversity. Well, it's her government's money that's doing it, isn't it? I mean, this idea that Esther McVeigh's the, the, the sort of common sense minister and she's the only one who suddenly worked out that we've been under the same government for 13 years <laughs> and it's all been going horribly wrong. I mean, what is yeah. going on? <laughs> yeah, it was a bit um, hilarious that that's <laughs> happened. But um, is she still doing Giovino's? Well, she had to, I think, not anymore. I, I actually think they've kind of done a bit of a number on Esther McVeigh because some of what she's looking at Public sector waste is really important. It is so important. Policing is really important. Yeah. Questions about two-tier policing. Um, there's loads of really um, kind of awful, divisive, DEI stuff that goes on in Whitehall and, yeah. you know, large sums of money being given to organisations like Stonewalls. This is all really important. So why did they give, have to give her such a silly title that's just so easily mockable? Yeah. That's the problem, is it was just so easy mockable. But she almost did name herself that. She was... Uh, yeah. And there's the common sense group, right. the Tory they group. They all nicked it for me, you know, because I was home with common sense before any of them. 
I've thought of it, you know. You patented and, and, it. <laughs> I haven't received any money for it or anything. But, but no, I mean, the thing is that, that surely if they'd wanted to get rid of all of that ridiculousness and, and the crazy woke brigade diversity instructions, they so could have just, made just our civil said... Service minister. They should have just said, this is now what we're doing, all of this is going... Every single department, from the Home mm -hmm. Office to the Foreign Office to, you know, the Department of Defence and Health and everything else, all of this is gone. None of it is, yeah. is any more part of, of, of the network. And that's... You don't point one person... Because she now gets yeah. all the flack yeah. for, for, for sort of, you know... She'll be anti-trans next, yeah. chased down the road by people. You know, all of that stuff will happen to her. I think she's brave, in a way, to take this portfolio on because so far, you know, no man minister really manages to fight the blob effectively. No. Um, and, you know, that's that's the whole civil service, yeah. which is which is so woke, it's untrue. Yeah. You know, the Competition and Markets Authority... I don't, when did all this happen? ...spend 10% of their time on um, equality, yeah. diversion... Diver diversity. Gold, gold diversity, yeah. inclusivity. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's linked to bonuses. It's just... it's. Um, yeah. It's completely sedimented throughout the But can anyone whole, remember when, did, you, when did it think, start? Well, the thing is, I would say, I, do, I think there are, there are some really, really brilliant civil servants who, who work incredibly hard, but it's very difficult in the civil service for anyone to get sacked ever. Mm. Yeah. So what you end up with is maybe, like, half the workforce doing all the work, and yeah. then there are lots of people who are, you know, not pulling their weight. Yeah. Who, and it's harder than it would be in the private sector to, you know... Maybe, yeah. Of course, that's not to say that there aren't slackers and... Um, um, wasteful um, HR types in the private sector. Obviously, there are tons of those, but I guess the difference is we're not forced to pay for I don't, them. I don't think many of them work Michelle Moan's company. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she's got too much diversity yeah. to going on. But, but yeah, not bit, all civil servants. But it much. doesn't... I mean, I, I'm sorry to keep saying this, old enough to remember when the civil service was, was kind of bad for different reasons. It was too conservative. Mm. It was full of blokes. It was full of people who didn't want to do very much to change the way that we are, but it's suddenly now completely reversed and has now become this radical kind of outspoken organisation of people who won't do what they're told and who are following Stonewall. I've always thought about this and I think it's because they had to... All government policy that may be about these kind of social issues had to be demonstrated and they used the civil service to lead by example. Yeah. And in my time working in politics quite directly at times... Um, I have kind of seen it to happen where people are, I'd be, have friends that are in civil service and they'd be talking about things that just didn't really matter. Mm. Um, that they'd have these afternoons yeah. that they did come and take these classes and it didn't really matter. And then they'd all be saying how busy they were and how mm. they were expected to do more work. And they kind of, like some people, if they were part of certain diverse groups, were allowed to have afternoons where they yes. just kind of met as a part of those diverse groups and someone was complaining because they didn't have a diverse right. group. And it just seemed very pointless. Right. Pointless. I bet they were all celebrating International Migrants Day, which apparently today. <laughs> and I was wondering whether there would be one for people who weren't migrants. Oh, I yeah. don't know what you call them. What do you call people who are not migrants? People that like staying put. People that don't like moving about much, Dave. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's, why have they got Sedentary International people. Migrants Day? Yeah. But about half the Home Office will have taken the day off. To go, <laughs> they, you know. they, they have an EDI calendar in the civil service that yeah. marks all these days. They live by it. But you know, this I have is to get quite, my hands on the, 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 these termites have, have also dined pretty well across the private yeah. sector and across yeah. all kinds of countries. Oh yeah. Well, some yeah. of the, the, some the private sector is even worse, isn't it? I mean, yeah. why at NatWest? What happens? But actually, in... interestingly, quite a lot of these um, departments have been scaled back. It's happening even more in the states because 
I think a lot of companies leapt on this as a sort of woke washing, but people have become more cynical. And also, if if, if you're losing money, that's mm. the first department that you cut yeah. back because it's not yeah. adding value to the company. So right. there has been a bit of pruning of this. I hope that to see more of it in, in this country. Yeah, but I mean, again, with the Stonewall business, if you're higher up the Stonewall kind of um, ladder of fame because you do more of it, um, you get more points and you get better <laughs> business and all of that. Um, with the question of sport being asked, we asked, Peter, football focus will be next to go. Do you feel sport and politics have become too intertwined? Um, IP says, once you watch a match, why do you need to hear other people's opinions? Isn't your own opinion enough? I well, I'd have to watch a match first to let you know. Yeah, Not okay. sure. And then obviously we wouldn't want your opinion on it because we just want need, our own opinion. I need someone's commentary. It's either it's either the TV or it's like my uncle who's a season ticket yes. holder of Aston Villa. Otherwise I won't know what's going yeah. on, you know. No, absolutely right. Well, listen, we've got more stories in the papers to do. You're watching the Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham. I'm going to take a trip to the world of woke. Um, and the panel will still be here, of course. There's lots of really interesting things to tell you about. And uh, they're all coming up next. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The World of Woke. You won't believe this one. Imagine making the trip to lay some flowers on a deceased loved one's grave and finding that someone had pushed the gravestone over so that it was lying flat on the ground. This is what is happening up and down the country as part of a new trend. But it's not vandals who are doing this desecration of our most reverential places. You've guessed it. It's your local council. That's right. I'm afraid it's the Health and Safety Brigade who have decided in their wisdom that they need to do spot checks of graveyards to make sure they are, in their words, safe. One place where it has already happened is Newcastle. Jesmond Old Cemetery, West Road Cemetery and Heaton Cemetery have all had a visit from the gravestone Jobsworths. According to their spokesman, the gravestone inspections were started in June to ensure that cemeteries are safe places for people to pay their respects and for our staff to work in. We understand, they say, that this is an emotive and sensitive subject, but we would like to reassure families that the work is carried out with the greatest respect and sensitivity. You're right. Families that were appalled by what the council have done are angry that they were not only not told it was happening, but they're also now required to pay 250 quid to have the headstones put upright again. So you can tell if your loved one has been targeted that there's a yellow sticker left on the headstone with an explanation. Marvellous, isn't it? The official reason is that the Health and Safety at Work Act requires headstones to be given a hand push test to see if they fall over. One angry resident, Derek Armstrong, said that the grave to his triplet son, who died before their first birthday in 95, was sturdy enough. There was nothing wrong with it, he told the Times, but still they laid it flat. I mean, I've heard of some harebrained schemes in the world of work, but this one really is scraping the barrel. And to do it just before Christmas seems unusually cruel. The world of work. I mean, have you ever heard anything like that? I'm absolutely... Imagine. I'm speechless. A guy went to put flowers on his mother's grave um, up in Newcastle at the weekend, and she always liked plastic flowers, so he always put plastic <sighs> flowers down. And he got there, and somebody just knocked it flat. And they were literally going around cemeteries knocking down gravestones. It's disgusting. It's what's incredible. The, what's the actual health and safety grounds? How many people have had graveyard... Yeah. Injuries. I can't how, imagine how many, many people have lost a limb to a falling gravestone. I mean, it's just bonkers. It's, I know. It's looking for problems where they don't exist, looking for mm -hmm. things to keep busy. Probably they've got too many people employed yeah. at that council. It's unbearably cruel. And, you know, if you lose your respect for the dignity of the dead, 
Yes. You haven't got much left. You're quite right about scraping the bottom of the it barrel. It really is. It's incredible. And, I mean, it's sort of symptomatic to me of where this society of ours has gone completely mad, mm. where somebody's going, oh, well, what if one of them falls over? I mean, I've never seen in any graveyard that I've ever been in a headstone fall over. No. Also, if they're going to if they're going to push it over, they should damn well pick up the tab. Mm. Imagine yeah. being not only know that that you know the grave of in that case of you know your triplet sons your triplet, who died yeah. before their first birthday, I know. and you have to fork out hideous two hundred and fifty quid just before Christmas. Mm. I mean, the the kind of inhumanity. It's that kind of callousness of the computer says no council, mm. isn't it? It is. It's yes. Just completely impersonal. Totally. Let's have a look at the front pages, though, because there's a very interesting one on the front of the mirror and also the Telegraph. Esther Ranson, why I've joined Dignitas. Dignitas, of course, being the Swiss clinic where you go uh, if you wish to end your own life. People have taken relatives there um, and, of course, been um, then threatened with prosecution when they get back home here. So it's quite an emotive subject, isn't it? Yeah. What do we make of that? It's an incredibly um, emotive story and my heart goes out to her and her family obviously yeah. this is not an easy decision for anyone to make um and anyone that has to wrestle with that i honestly i don't know how they do it especially when you're not the person making the decision right. and it's a loved one so say one of my sisters or my parents um i do think this is a conversation we should be having though so i'm really glad she's talking about it because I know um, the panellists have a different view to me, but I would ideally like to see maybe a change in law um, one it. day to allow yeah. it. Yeah, not necessarily for this country. I think the whole time we have an NHS, this country is obsessed with keeping the NHS and it, like the cult around it. Mm. That before you know it, you'd have people saying, "Oh, it's, it's your civic duty to go and." swallow the medicine mm. to save the government some money. Yeah. Um, I do think that is a real possibility, but I think that we shouldn't doubly traumatise people by if my relatives were to take me, them coming home and being arrested when yeah. they touch down. I know it's a complicated subject, but I've always I mean, the, thought the, about the, the this. Thought, I mean, there are some MPs who have been brave enough to try and put sort of motions in and to discuss mm. this in Parliament, but not very often. But, I mean, the authorities' view is that it might be misused, right, by unscrupulous people, yeah. relatives who are looking for money, all sorts of things. Oh, and maybe not just by relatives, you know, maybe, in a sense, by the state. Yeah. Canada has... Mm. I think set a terrible example. I mean, I, I've got a lot of sympathy for restaurants and I can imagine being in the same sort of situation where, you know, maybe you're going to have a really unpleasant degenerative painful illness, perhaps lose your marbles on the way and yeah. I can see how somebody wants to make that decision. But there are such dangers, you know. In Canada, they were pretty much recommending it to veterans with post-traumatic stress yeah. disorder, yeah. people who can't afford to live. Right. Yeah. I mean, even minors, and they keep kind of clawing yeah. back on some of these worst egregious examples of euthanasia. Mm. But I think Canada's the example. They call it MAID, don't they? Medically Assisted yes. Dying. Yeah. It's a really unpleasant, uh, mm. dystopic euphemism, uh, acronym. And that's. I think that should give anybody pause for thought. Mm. Yeah. The idea that you could become Canada. Yes, mm -hmm. but yeah. would would if it was available though not would it not be possible to regulate it in such a way that that some of those things couldn't happen? Because I know it's a couple of yeah. states in America have done it as well. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of the countries, the countries in Europe that have done it, haven't exactly had the kind of. I mean, Canada is the really dystopian example, but there have also been cases of minors being 
um, given medically assisted death um, in in the Netherlands and elsewhere, and people with you know eating disorders, mm. people who are simply depressed. Yeah. Um, you know, I think what's what started out as the sort of relieving people from intolerable pain, the slippery slope very quickly right. um, gave it a much wider remit than that. And I do worry that in a country like Britain, we would, if anything, be uniquely at risk of that happening, not just because, um, as Megan very well put about the um, unhealthy relationship that we have with our health system, but also we're a country in which a lot of people's wealth is tied up in their homes. Mm. and. We like to think that people wouldn't be unscrupulous, but I, I reckon that you would see a lot of families where um, there would be great pressure on the older person yeah. to, you know, take one for the mm. team. Is it? I'm sorry, I know that sounds horrible, but I believe that I believe in human evil is true is yeah. real. I believe that, oh, that I there, there is evil. There's no question about. I, I, yeah. I wonder whether that is the same in almost every walk of life, and that you, that's what you legislate for. Yeah. In Esther Ranson's case, she's got stage four lung cancer, and the thing that you know about that is that it can be a very painful death, yeah. and a lot of people, you know, suffer terribly. In, in, the, in the final sort of days and weeks and, and, and months yeah. of their life. And so she should maybe have the right to do it in her own country. Yeah, I, I think, think. I think it's an impossible conundrum. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, like, it's, like, it's a bit like the abortion debate. You know, yeah. you can always see arguments on both sides. Yeah. I, even if I don't agree with them, I don't, I'm mm. fully pro-choice. But you can, you can see the arguments on both sides, but it's, it feels like it's almost impossible to come to um, kind of equitable agreement. Yeah. And I think the slippery slope yeah. is the problem. Yeah, of course, yeah. that and is completely the problem. And I also really understand the spiritual objections to it. You know, you're not going to find an organised religion that says, yes, top people off before mm. the end. Yeah. yeah. No, indeed. Um, let's go to something slightly different. Um, Russell Brand has been quizzed once again uh, over further alleged historical sex offences in The Sun. Uh, he was apparently uh, in attendance at the South London police station last Thursday, uh, interviewed under caution having been questioned already last month. I mean, it's a strange story, this, because a lot of it is very historic. A lot of it goes to um, the stories of, of um, you know, he said, she said. Nobody's really sure whether he's in the wrong or whether he's ever going to be charged or whether this is fair. I mean, what do you guys think? Well, I, this story had gone quiet for a long time, and if this is all that's come up most recently... Well, the I police don't, do I seem to take I mean, an age to do everything now, though. I mean, look at all the yeah, police investigations do. that are going on that seem to go on forever, you know, and they never come to any kind of conclusion. So this is, I think, some... You know, what, what they all say is that if we report some cases, then more people will come forward and all of that. I don't think anybody's in any doubt that Russell Brand may have treated women badly in his, his, well, his history, but yeah, whether he he's was... guilty of anything more than that, I don't know. Uh, there's, there's bound to be some um, foul play... Of one form or another. Yeah. I mean, given yeah, his yeah. body count, as the yes. young people call it, yeah. and the fact that he was an addict, yeah. Yeah. people don't behave best when they're addicted no. to taking substances. That's not to excuse anything. I think that'd be awful. I bet all of your female panelists here have got horrible stories to tell. Mm -hmm. However, there's something so unfair as well about women coming forward anonymously because they have the um, ability to completely destroy somebody. Yeah without suffering the consequences in the way he does. I feel very on the fence about all of these Russell Brand allegations yeah. until, we, until we know more. And in a way, the, the, the modern world media that we live in mm. hasn't allowed him to be cancelled because he's still able to do his show on Rumble. Yeah. Um, he's probably never going to be hired by any of the mainstream sort of BBC, ITV-type shows, but let's not forget that he was doing shows with them when all of this was supposed when, to be going on. When it was and all they happening. didn't say anything. Yeah. They were, yeah. if anything, potentially even enabling it to some yeah. degree. They liked Russell when he said the right things. They didn't like 
and when he started saying the wrong things. Yeah. People, I remember everyone in a household sitting around and laughing at the egregious things that he would say because it was a different time. Yeah. yeah. So I'm fully with you on that. I think the TV bosses, in, maybe in some ways, I don't know, but the, we know these types of things and behaviours were encouraged. Yeah. They probably they were. It, yeah. But I remember when you know there was that horrifying phone call with him and Jonathan Ross swinging up. That was Andrew yeah, that was disgusting. Disgusting. But actually. There was a kind of cultural irreverence at that time, so yeah. a lot of people sort yeah. of made out that you were like a bit of a fuddy-duddy if you didn't yeah. think it was, you know, yeah. just banter. Yes. You know. I remember everyone finding it funny. Yeah. Well, my, it see, was a terrible thing to do to the granddaughter. I remember not liking it, but that was a phase when I used to tune into his show because oh, I thought he was yeah. hilarious. I a lot of that kind of... I always, um, yeah. Loaded FHM, yeah. you know, yeah. lad banter was actually yeah. funny. Yeah. That case went too far. Oh, yeah. it was awful. Yeah. It, I, it was I, a particular yeah. time. But, you know, as they say, comedy is not pretty. Uh, we've only got 30 seconds, so don't get carried away. Schools told to presume children cannot change their gender. That's news now in Finally. 2023. I mean, this is just you know, ridiculous. It used to be news, but now it, it is. Thank goodness this know. has reached educational establishments. Yeah. Well done, schools. Biological sex is real and you shouldn't be grooming children into magical thinking, at least not without their parents' permission. Yeah. It doesn't sound complicated. Yeah, make <laughs> sure if you're going to groom a child, get the parents' permission first. Exactly. That's what I say. Uh, anyway, uh, that's all from me tonight. You've been watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you uh, to all of my guests. It's been brilliant. Uh, I'll see you all uh, tomorrow, of course, at 9pm. There'll be plenty of stuff to follow up on. Laura Dodsworth, thank you very much. Of um, course, Madeline Grant um, and, of course, uh, Megan Gittos as well. Uh, we've got lots going on. We'll see you tomorrow at 9pm. Don't forget, it's Talk TV. Breakfast coming up in the uh, morning at 6.30. Loads more to come. Uh, we'll see you then. Very good night.